Hey, welcome folks. This is Robert Barry Fleming with Borrow Wisdom, and I have two spectacular guests today. Dr. Don Wade, the Chief Strategy Officer, and Stacy Wade, the CEO of the spectacular Nimbus, the most spectacular ad agency that you might not have ever heard of. I want to welcome you both. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thanks, Robert. We appreciate it. I had the great pleasure of being introduced to Stacy several months ago through Cynthia Napek at Leadership Louisville, who I have great regard for, and I was in the class of 2020, and she said, you really need to meet Stacy." I said, oh, yeah, great, great. Let, let me see if I can have a, a lunch with this brother. And um, Stacy and I, over, I think it was Thai food, Stacy. It was not. It was Mediterranean. Oh, Mediterranean food. Let me get it straight. They're no Again, longer there anymore. I know. We have had quite a time here in Louisville. We're able to sit and kind of begin understanding ways that we might possibly collaborate. We've had the good fortune of working with this company that really revolutionized the landscape for Papa John's. And we'll get into that. But uh, Stacy, you and Don have just a spectacular company. Can you just tell us a little bit about the origin story of Nimbus and how that's come about? Yeah, I can. I'll give you the, the short version of it. But Nimbus started about 20 years ago. I was actually working for another agency here in town called Mo Better Marketing. It's no longer, I don't think Mo Better Marketing's no, any longer around, but it's now, I think, New West, but it was with Carl Brazley. And uh, he gave me one of my, my first jobs in marketing and worked for him for a couple of years and, and ended up being fired. Not because of the work, more of it was just circumstances of the time. And I think for me, as a you know early 20, probably 21, 22-year-old, I had a desire to say, listen, I want to do it on my own. You know, I come from a long line of entrepreneurs. So it was something that I was familiar with, not necessarily marketing, but just familiar with the process and the grind. So I decided, walked across the street to building, which is still there, Glassworks, and started Nimbus. And we started off as a digital agency. The great thing about when we started, we were able to bring the clients that we had brought, that I had brought over to MoBetter. We were able to retain some of those clients. They were gracious enough to allow us to do that. So we did that. And, you know, we really believe in deep relationships. I think our entire business is built off of this notion of really understanding that people matter and creating these very deep relationships with our clients and looking at them more as partners always. And from those deep relationships, things happen. So the client that we brought was Motown. And Motown ended up buying, Universal ended up buying Motown. So we ended up getting Universal. And then one thing, another thing happened, Vivendi bought them, pushed us into Spirits. From Spirits, we got into Brown Foreman. And the list goes on and on. Toyota, Papa John's, Swisher, Norton, all built off relationships. I don't think that there are many pieces of business that we have that are driven by RFPs. They're really driven by deep relationships. And I think about 10 years into the business, we ended up getting a really good client, local client, HJI, Houston Johnson, which is Alice Houston and Wade Houston, their company now ran by Conrad, Daniels, and Lynn. So for us, getting that piece of business really changed 
the way that we did business because we used to look at it as we used to be, you know, a digital traditional agency. But I think that piece of business really was eye opening for us because it allowed us to think more strategically and really understanding that our best product was our strategy, our ability to think through projects. And probably three years after that, we were fortunate enough to bring Dr. Don on, who had a deeper understanding of strategy and thinking of things holistically and understanding, you know, the real difference between strategy versus tactical and being able to really expand those services for us. So fast forward, here we are today. And, you know, what we do best is cultural understanding, you know, these cultural nuances and being able to lay strategy on top of that, being able to put together the tactical elements to execute those strategies. So when we met and I left that meeting saying, this is one of the most brilliant brothers I have ever met, besides being being besides being incredibly successful with his business. But you immediately defer to say, oh, no, no, no. The real deal is Dr. Don Wade. And I immediately was like, oh, that is clearly not just deference to a partner in life. I heard very clearly that what you were saying, and I said, I cannot wait to meet Don. Don, can you talk a little bit about this phenomena of navigating the difference between strategy and tactical and your incredibly eclectic background to coming to that conversation and how, how you have actually uh, come to being able to articulate that because it's a pretty remarkable story. Yeah, I think that, you know, oftentimes in business, we are putting out the fire that's right there in front of us. And, you know, oftentimes that's that tactical work, you know, and it's the need of what's itching now, what has to be scratched. But in reality, everything you should be doing on a regular basis should be tying up to something big. And it's kind of like, how do you define success? And I ask customers this all the time. And they're like, well, we need to do this and this. And I'm like, that's not strategic. That's just something that needs to be done in this moment. But it has to tie into something bigger. There has to be a bigger motivation. You're trying to make some change. That's why we do marketing, right? To change something or to enforce something. So I often say, let's work backwards. If I do this today, then what does it do for the brand? So if you do this marketing campaign, what does it do? Well, it increases our market share and our customers. Okay, so is that that's what success means. Okay, so now it's about increasing market share. So how do we increase market share? It's not just one thing. It might be 10 things. So I often have to work backwards from clients to understand that you can do these onesie twosies, but it has to tie into something bigger. And that's what strategy is. Strategy is the effort of connecting your goals to your success. You know, so oftentimes clients just don't think that way. And often what they call strategy, they're referencing something that's an operational or a tactical level item. I often say that strategy is when you're 100,000 feet up. Tactical is when you're, you know, 50,000 feet up. And operational is on the ground, what you're doing on the ground. And I often differentiate that between the levels of employment. So your frontline employees are doing your operational stuff that's on the ground. Your mid-level managers are handling the tactical items and managing the operational team. And your C-suite, they are responsible for your strategic initiatives. And oftentimes clients will have us come in and want us to work with that mid-level manager 
And we have to explain it to say, but what are you doing at the CEO's level? What are you doing at the CMO level? Because that's where your direction should be coming from. And if it's not, you're likely going to end up in two different places. But somebody who kind of prided themselves as like having a marketing background, I certainly found the rigor in which you investigated that strategy with us really phenomenal. And probably one of the most legible evolutions in strategic is probably your work with Papa John's. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, as much as Phil's able to offer in a public setting, what that process was for this amazing turnaround and how you brought Shaq into that conversation as well? Yeah. So it wasn't done by just either one of us. It was a collective effort. When and we'll jump in and tag team here, but it started before Shaquille ever made it to the table, right? It actually started when the NFL comments were made, and that was like November, December of 2017, probably. And when the news started spreading, you know, I I said to Stacy, you know, they obviously don't have a multicultural plan. You know, no one would have recommended they went out with that, and I was like, we should connect with them to do some work with them. And of course, that's when Stacy took over. And I think he spent five months trying to develop a relationship with their then CEO. So he can talk more to that. And, and I actually didn't have a large part in that. It wasn't until we actually start putting stuff on paper that I came back into the fold. Yeah. You know, again, that's where these deep relationships come into play. A friend of a friend actually a guy in town, Judge Derwin Webb, actually introduced me to their now, um, well, at the time, I don't even think she was chief diversity officer at the time. She wasn't. It was Victoria uh, Russell. She was in marketing. And that was an introduction that, you know, I'll always be grateful for because it's good when you can get a client. It's even better when you develop a relationship and they trust you and you're able to really bring your full self to the table to allow the full value to happen. And she was able to get us right in front of the then CMO at the time. And, it, and you know, the it's a, even you think about 2017 versus 2020, how different of a world it was in 2017. I know it's crazy. It's just three years. But the world was completely different. And, you know, it's funny because I had this question that was sent, that was asked of us by another client. It was like, you know, we don't see a lot of multicultural on your website. I said, you know, it's funny. It's funny what three years can do. Three years ago, you never put that on your website. It was an assumption. And once you get in front of them, then they start to understand the complexities that come with multicultural. And I think it's, you know, the, the direction that we wanted to take with Papa John specifically was it wasn't about hey, you need an African-American agency or a Hispanic agency or an Asian agency. Oh, you need a cultural agency, somebody that can kind of guide you through these nuances that are going to be extremely valuable. And this is 2017. They're going to be extremely valuable. And a lot of what we're talking about, as you can probably see in retrospect, is the timing was just, especially for me, and I can't speak for everybody, but my life is really based on timing hitting the hole at the exact right time. And it, I might, it might be a bumpy ride, but for me, it's all about timing, being in the right place at the right time with the right people, and then being open enough to let you have this conversation about culture. And 
kudos to Papa John's, that five months that it took to be able to get to the door. Once we made it through the door, we had allies that were inside of Papa John's that allowed us to be the agency that we are today. They allowed us to really have these cultural conversations, hard, difficult conversations that would then later translate into real strategy, real plans, and real execution. What is the key outside of almost making this a social enterprise as much as bringing on a client? What's the key accelerator to having a successful partnership? And what are the key things that can often derail that kind of integration of cultural success, timing, and an organization's just cultural ability to adapt and engage and go along for that ride. Let me, uh, I'm gonna take the first part of this because there's a reason why I wanna take the first part of this. There is really a level of honesty that has to, has to be applied, but there's also the delivery. And I think the really cool thing about, and I don't think you can have this obsequious type of, approach to a client. I think though they may not like the band-aid being pulled off, they really appreciate how it heals once it's off the air, right? They understand it, they feel it. And I think that Don and I have a really, really, really unique approach. And they're super different, but they have confluence to the exact same destination. And the difference between our approaches I think brings so much value to a client because my approach is very much velvet hammer. Don's approach is very much hammer. (laughs) And it's just, that's why I wanted to take the first part of this (laughs) because our approaches are completely different, but they get you to the exact same, they get you to the place that you need to be. And some of it is, hey, it's okay, it's okay. And then uh, the other approach is, Okay, let's let's we gotta get to work. And that's what the dynamic of it brings that synergy together. Don, am I wrong or, or, or you wanna add to that? No, he's right. I'm not good with the velvety things. I am the the analytical one that says, you know, your data tells you that this is what you need to do and this is what you should be doing, and I can give you a way to actually do that and be able to measure it and have a story to tell at the end of it. I am less prepared or less capable of that velvety hammer stuff. And, you know, that's what makes us good because I know what Stace is good at and I'm very comfortable with that being his lane. And then I'm very comfortable with staying in my lane. It's a powerful combination. And I'll just offer from being in the room with you, I think as, as one who thinks of themselves as not being locked in gender roles, it is surprising that each of those things are coming out of each of your bodies <laughs> in a room. It's like, it's confusing. And at the same time, so effective. Cause it's like, Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. What, what are we doing? What are we doing? And yet we're getting at some, something really essential. You know, we're at a precipice of something moving towards a utopia or a dystopia culturally in this country. And certainly with the Breonna Taylor grand jury decision being very present right now in people's minds, and uh, across our city and our region, but also across the nation and the world, looking at the ways that we are either moving towards something that is going to really liberate us collectively, liberate something in humanity, or lock us into what feels like a real downward spiral. And I have been so struck by 
your work having uh, that kind of resonance that it was, uh, as I said, it felt much more holistic and comprehensive, like a social enterprise than simply about increasing sales. Don, can you talk a little bit about your background? You know, I was looking at your dissertation. <laughs> I brought that up in uh, just a little of a pre pre-conversation. And within the title of your dissertation, you talk about exploitation or exploration. And in a country that has kind of based some of its work in exploration, but a lot of its work in the last 400 years in extraction kind of ethos, can you talk a little bit about what your research has yielded you in knowledge about how to help navigate a constructive path forward, helping people because this work is really about changing minds as much as it is about influencing. But could you just talk a little bit about your research and how that informs what you do? I think that, you know, we often give ourselves so much credit for being so creative, you know, and it, it takes me back to what my mother would tell me as a child. Like, you think you're the first one to come up with that, to try to get over on me or or this? You're not the first one that, that thinks this is the way it goes. <laughs> And I never digested that. But now I have a four-year-old who does the same thing to me. And I'm like, this is not my first rodeo, little boy. So I think that (laughs) oftentimes, even in business, we think that we're being so creative and it's just this big, gigantic idea. But it's usually something that has come up before to some degree. And the notion of exploitation and exploration is just one that says, if I have this business and it's established already, I'm doing something right. And just because a new opportunity comes my way doesn't mean that I abandon all the things that I am doing right. It means that I can make it better and I can make small tweaks to that business to make it better so that it's sustainable. That's the business that's paying the bills, that's paying the salaries, you know, it keeps the lights on in the building. But if I only do this, I'll always stay where I am now. So I have to explore. I have to look for new opportunities in order to grow. And when you explore, that's a part of your growth strategy. And it means that you have to do things differently. The customer that you have now, if you want to get a new customer, you got to do something different. So it's the notion of exploring. And when you explore, it's about doing things that meets the needs of others. And it's probably less comfortable for you as a business or you as a person, but it means that you have to get out there and do things differently that you haven't done. And that's riskier because you don't know if it's going to succeed. You know, the chance of failure is high. There may be money loss, but you learn something and you're able to craft something new that gives you a bigger return that a lot of times will outdo what you've already done in the past. So it's about continuing to innovate. And I think that every business has to innovate differently, especially with technology, especially with the way in which the culture has changed the the whole makeup of, of our country, the civil unrest. Like, this is a time of disruption. So every business that wants to get, you know, money from a Hispanic customer or a Black customer, you have to start thinking differently. You have to be intentional. We know that you haven't been checking for us. And you've kind of been getting ourselves because we may not have had anywhere else to go. But now we recognize that we do have options. So in order for you to cater to us, you have to talk our language and talk in a way that entices us to want to do business with you. 
And that's why businesses have to start exploring more to figure out how to gain their market share. With the loss of Justice Ginsburg recently, we really struck about the intersection of this racial justice and gender justice kind of conversation that continues to hobble the nation when we're not fully invested in that. But looking at Nimbus, Stacy, we recognize that the company has a it goes beyond gender parity and is a real multicultural coalition of uh, brain trust in there. Can you talk a little bit about how you arrive at the kind of company and the folks you have at all levels for your organization working and who those folks are? Yeah, definitely. We have a great group of people that work for us. And a lot of that is curated. It's a culture that I think for us, I think it starts with, it starts with me. I think that I have a a very empathetic personality. Like I try to, you know, energy is important to me. (laughs) I try to, uh, the other thing is important to me is drive. So if you have drive and energy and, you know, some tacit knowledge, even if you don't have the tacit knowledge, just the knowledge and the wherewithal, and the biggest piece of all is common sense. Those are things that I look for in people. And I think for me personally, especially you hear this word multicultural, and you know, it's very, this reductive approach of, well, I'm black, of course it's multicultural. No, that's not what it is. Or, you know, I'm Hispanic. Well, just the fact you say that you're Hispanic, what, what about Afro-Latino? What about these cultural nuances that happen, that exist? And I think it's bigger than multicultural. It's about multiculturalism. It's about, you know, it's not about you accepting me while we're at work. I want you to go home and I want you to live it at home. And I want that to happen outside of the advertisements outside of the marketing. I don't want you to, you know, I call it looking like it records. I want you to actually be it. Like I want you to go home and, and and actually live multiculturalism, not just multicultural. Oh, you might have a friend that is different. Do you? Because every picture that I see, I don't see anybody that's different. And if you come over to when, you know, pre-COVID, if you were to come over to our house or if you were invited, yeah, you might have Soul Patrol, but you got all this other stuff going on. Like there's a mix of everything. It's not a matter of, you know, looking at it from this reductive kind of very myopic lens of, oh, your skin is black. You're with me. It's really about values and do we share these values and are you an ally? Do you understand like the power that you bring and can we work together in do you understand, like, you know, what you could do, how you could change somebody's life? You know, Nimbus is really built on the backs of people that got it, that it really clicked with them. Like, this is this isn't just right. This is, this just doesn't feel good. This is right. This is where we need to be headed. This is the future. This is the value. This is what you bring to our company. The fact that you're not walking in with, and listen, I love suits. I wear suits, <laughs> but the fact that it's not about me trying to impress you. It's about the value that we bring as people to your organization and understanding and navigating those cultural nuances and flicking on the switch to add the rest of that word to it, the other tense of that word of multiculturalism and bringing that value to the table. Really, not only does it add to the relationship, it adds to the bottom line because that is the business case. As we're moving into this, the late stage of 2020 and all the impacts of these two public health crises and an election, what would you both offer about Greater Louisville 
as a template for how we can move forward and what is needed at this moment? What would you offer to our populace? Because I think we have all eyes on us at this moment, and you have a very comprehensive way and perspective to talk from. But what are we needing to focus on right now? You know, I don't feel like you can empathize to someone that you don't understand. And in order to understand, you have to listen. You know, I I hear people say, well, this happened way back when, and this is just the way that it is now. But if this is the way that it is now, obviously, whatever constructed it was wrong, whatever constructed it was biased. So that means that you have to break that down if you want to grow. Like hearing some people who are from Louisville talk about, I think it's the Ninth Street divide and how it happened and how Louisville has been all these years. I'm not from Louisville, but I've been in many cities. I've lived in several places and Louisville looks very similar to a lot of other cities. So there's a common theme that's allowing this stuff to take place. But if you just keep talking about what you've done now, what the city is doing now, you're never going to fix all the issues that permeated that allowed us to be in the situation that we are now. You know, the quick fixes, throwing money at one thing and not dealing with it systematically does not help. If we talk about, for example, if we talk about the education divide of what happens in the West End versus what happens in the East End, you recognize that schools get money based off taxes. And if no one in the West End is paying a tax that then translates into education in those those schools, it will continue to permeate. There will continue to be the racial divide. There will continue to be the gap in education levels between Black and white students. So until we address that, we will continue to have this issue. And systemic racism starts from the very basis of opportunity. And it touches so many different areas. If I can't get a job, that's because I'm likely not qualified for that job. I'm not qualified because I didn't have the right education. I didn't have the education because I was living in the wrong area. I lived in that area because I couldn't afford to live anywhere else. That affects health care. That affects so many other things that allow us to be in this situation. So for us to prevent other people from losing their lives and other people from being oppressed, we have to look at it holistically. And I hope that Louisville is able to do that, to grow and be a symbol of that, because no other city has the opportunity like we have right now. And if we just acknowledge it and address it, we can grow from it. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And I'll just add another layer on top of that. Being from, you know, here and understanding, you know, I grew up on a very unique block in Louisville where, you know, my neighbors were the first large-scale Black construction company, which was Cosby, David Cosby Sr., to a neighbor being, you know, Reverend Lewis Coleman. You know, I lived in this kind of unique street, literally just the street of these Black entrepreneurs and activists. And it was really, everybody was being raised on the street. I think the part that makes me really sad is that, you know, I watched Reverend Lewis Coleman fight the exact same fight that is being fought today. And I'm 44 years old. So I've literally seen this my entire life in Louisville. This isn't Brianna. The, you know, the part that makes, makes me sad is Brianna's not the first one, right? And we know that Brianna won't be last. And that's the part that's really, when you really kind of put that into perspective, is like, okay, you know, what can we do? Everything that Don said is so on point. I think that for me, 
my own experience, my mother would always say, as you know, money's interesting because she would say to me as I as we started being really successful, and my parents never moved off that street. And she would always say, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget where you came from. And those words stick with me. Even today, I can hear her saying those things. And it boils me. It takes me to one word, which is, I mean, well, two words, restorative economics. You know, the difference on our block is that we owned everything. My father was an entrepreneur. David Cosby Sr. was an entrepreneur. Reverend Lewis Coleman was an entrepreneur. Every, it was a lot of entrepreneurs on our block. So we kind of controlled our neighborhood to an extent. The laundromat was black owned. Uh, the barbershop was what everything in our neighborhood was this way. So you almost grow up in this bubble. But that bubble is very helpful today because it helps me understand what we need. What we need to do, what we need is to be able to control the money that is that are in our neighborhoods. And we need to be able to develop and sustain Black-owned businesses in these neighborhoods. If you go into West Louisville today, or you look at you know the businesses that are there, you ask yourself, you go in, you look in, and do we own these businesses? Do we have a role in these businesses? How can we have a role in these businesses if we don't own? It's not a matter of, hey, you can be different and be here, but you got to still respect the community. And I think that, that there's a piece of that that's missing. Why, were, why are we patrolled different in our own neighborhoods? Because you don't live there. There's no respect for the community. There's no restorative economic. We don't own this block. We owned our block when I was a kid. So it was very different. But that sticks with me. And I think that there are so many people, allies, and uh, there are so many people in Louisville that want to help in this scenario. We just need to be able to develop a vessel that allows them to put the money in the right places so that we can start to develop businesses and have some restorative economics. You both have been such leaders in the civic spaces as well as these cultural spaces. For my last question, I'm just curious, you work together, you have family and build together. How do you maintain your own sustainable way to move forward taking on such meaningful leadership positions in the community and both civically in business and as role models for how to move forward positively. How do you all keep your balance? How do you sustain and take care of yourselves? I um, I came from very humble beginnings. And I talked to that, I think, in the dissertation. You, you probably could read a little bit of that. And I think that to see that and see that my family, many of my family are still in those same situations. It's almost like it just keeps injecting fuel in my back to say, how can I make it different? You know, how can one, I don't ever want to be back in that situation. And I definitely don't want my son to be in that situation. So every day when I wake up and I don't feel like doing it, I remind myself that in order to not go back to that, I have to be different. I have to keep driving. But I think beyond that, the work that we're doing, I am hopeful and I am I pray that it really does lead to systemic change so that it helps my family. You know, that I want to be able to go back and do more for my family and to do more for other families here, here in Louisville as well. So that's the fuel that keeps me going. You know, we've done some work and there were nights that it just it hurt my soul. But when I think of Brianna Taylor's mother. I got up and I got it together. My words came to me and I was able to push through. 
So the fuel of not allowing what has been happening to continue and that we are a disruptor is what motivates me. And, you know, I say that it's often not about me. Like it used to be all about me, but at this point I've made that transition to say that it's not all about me so that I have to give more to others than I give to myself. And honestly, that means we often sacrifice our time, things like that. But at the end of the day, I recognize that that's what makes me feel the best. That's the most rewarding work that I've ever done. When we started to work with Papa John, there was a school, Bennett College, and they were about to lose their accreditation. And we were able to convince Papa John's to donate a sizable amount to them and also put marketing funds behind it so that it spreads the awareness so that that school would not have to close because it's one of two Black female schools in the United States. That was probably some of the most rewarding work I've ever done. Not that I know anybody that went to Bennett or anything like that, but the ability to help save an institution that's historically grounded in the Black community was the most rewarding thing. You know, So those are the things that fuel me to continue to do the work that we're doing here at Nimbus. And I think that sometimes we have opportunities that just are not as rewarding. That doesn't mean that I don't do them, but there's a different type of commitment when I know that I'm affecting lives and making lives better for other people. Yeah, I think for me, you know, I just come from a long line of people that put themselves into me, right? So I think it's important whether that's a Carrie Peterson who I grew up with and really took me under her wing and said, treated me like a son to uh, David Cosby Sr., to a Lewis Coleman, to a Carl Brazley. I think it's really important that for me, what keeps me motivated and moving is that I know that it's my responsibility to not hold the information, but it's my responsibility to give you the information. Just because I give you the ingredients doesn't you're not competition with me. Like it doesn't mean we're going to cook the same meal. So I can give it to you. And it doesn't mean you know how to cook with fire, but it's my responsibility to at least show you the right temperature, to at least show you the right ingredients, to at least show you a path or the ability to say, hey, listen, you, you don't have to do it the way that you're doing it. If I can guide you or put you in a different place where you can learn from my mistakes. I think me getting up every day and understanding that I have the ability to do that and it's so small, it's nothing, it's minute. To be able to show you that, hey, listen, this is how I did it. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to do it the exact same way, but I'm at least going to give it to you so that we can have more people at the table that have the business acumen and the ability to make these changes. It might not happen with me, but it's going to happen with my son or my daughter. So it's up to me or, the you know, anybody that, that comes to us and asks for mentorship. We get that all the time. And I think it's our responsibility as people that are, you know, that have the, the means to be able to do that, to be able to apply that. And it's also my responsibility to bring the people that have lifted me up. Let me introduce you to some people. Let me make these introductions because a lot of what we see happening right now, the fact that people don't have a certain level of empathy is because those conversations aren't happening. So you have to be able to connect these dots so these things can happen. And if I can be kind of the uh, the connector that does that, then why not? Let's do it. Dr. Don Wade, CEO Stacy Wade, we want to thank you so much for your time today and offer our enormous gratitude for the kind of service that you 
give to this community and other communities for the greater good. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate you. And yeah, I don't think that we could leave here without saying that you are so tremendously important to this community. And I think that you don't get enough credit for leading and being courageous and bold enough to make changes that, especially in an industry that desperately needs it, but sometimes don't understand the, the change that they need. So to be able to have somebody like you that looks like you, that acts like you at the head table leading that charge, we appreciate you. I appreciate that immensely. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, thanks, folks, for joining us for Borrowed Wisdom. We'll see you next week. Borrowed Wisdom is a community-supported project of Actors Theatre Direct, the virtual home of Actors Theatre of Louisville. It's hosted by Executive Artistic Director Robert Barry Fleming. Learn more about Actors Theatre of Louisville at actorstheatre.org.